Mr. Michael Vecchione, and today we were talking about the uh, the used condom story, and I had you send it to me again last night. Whenever I have on an author of anything, whether it's like a short story like this or whether it's like a 50-hour audiobook, like I'll always have read it, and then as the date gets closer, I read it again. So for like a big audiobook, a long book, you know, I start listening to it again like two days out. And for right. shorter stories like yours, like I'll, I'll just read them again in the morning real quick. And um, I put it on my iPad, which I can get it to read it to me. So we'll put that little image aside. In the mornings, I always wake up and I always just turn on some music just to kind of get out of bed. And uh, this morning I was listening to Biggie Smalls and I've been uh, I've been I've been really getting into like 90s rap overlaid onto like tropical music so it's like xylophones and piano really oh, up, yeah really upbeat so i'm listening to like biggie smalls and it's it's just you know it's really like kind of like hawaii vibes and then i was like all right I, you know gotta gotta start prepping for the podcast so i put on the put on the kindle and i immediately went from this like you know kind of just tropical dancing vibe to and i just laughed because like 10 seconds in i just switched from black to white biggie smalls tropical to like, they walked in and found her strangled with blood and semen over her face and anus, and I was like, "Today is I'm I'm talking to Vecchione today." That's that's I was like, "That's who I know who I'm talking to." Tropical house to like dead, and I was like, "Mike's coming on today." So uh, I don't know if that's the best introduction. I say it with love, but for all the new listeners, please introduce yourself. Well, um, for the new <laughs> listeners, my name is Michael Vecchione, and. Um, I am the former chief of the rackets division in the Brooklyn district attorney's office. And, um, and I thank you, Tom, for again, once again, having me on the show. And, um, it's always a pleasure. And, and I really have a good time when we, uh, we sit and talk about, uh, these old cases that I did and they're not very old. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're, to me, they're old because I've already done them, but, um, and they're, uh, for they're, they're interesting cases. For everyone listening, your other books, Crooked Brooklyn, uh, you helped with uh, Behind the Murder Curtain with Bruce Sackman and uh, Friends of the Family. Uh, Crooked Brooklyn, I believe, is on Audible. Um, the other ones are on Kindle. And we've done episodes with all of those. I'll put those in the description. They're all fantastic reads. Uh, some of them are terrifying, and well, all of them are kind of terrifying and unnerving. But at the same time, just objectively. I mean, they're fascinating from, you know, Swango killing people to, you know, the woman getting raped, killed, strangled and lit on fire on a bridge to everything in between. Or um, yeah, I was just telling you beforehand, I was at my cousin's wedding this weekend. Someone actually came up to me and they're like, I listened to this story with the, the honeybees and the pot. And I was like, oh, Vecchione. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, fuck yeah. So but today, because I just so rudely cut you off. We are, uh, of the many short stories of yours we have gone through, we are going through the, uh, the ballad of the, the used condom saleswoman. Yeah. Eric Jackson Knight um, is the name of the defendant in that case, or the accused. Um, and he's, uh, he was a kind of notorious guy in Brooklyn, too, particularly to my boss, the district attorney, and I'll explain why, which kind of gets me to the very, very beginning of the story, which kind of um, sets the stage for what ultimately happens and, and how I get this case. Several years before I got this case of a, of a horrible murder on the uh, Coney Island boardwalk, actually, during the 
cold weather where there was no, you know, no amusements going on. And, and this deceased, the victim, was living in an abandoned um, concession stand on the boardwalk with a friend of hers. And she's um, found brutally murdered. Uh, and to not skip ahead, but I'll skip to just who was arrested ultimately, is uh, Eric Jackson Knight was, uh, was arrested. Now, when a case... When they when the case was made and um, and he was arrested, the district attorney assigned the case to me personally to try. I at the time was um, chief of the homicide bureau, and um, and I had been in the office, uh, you know, for several years, and and I had tried tons of cases, both as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. And it was important for him to get, um, for, for not necessarily bragging, but someone who had been in a courtroom before to try this case because this particular defendant had proved to be a very difficult individual to, um, to bring to justice. Um, and the reason I say that is, and I'll go back, many years before um, this homicide, there was a, uh, there was a fire in a Wallbounds supermarket. Wallbounds is a is a chain of supermarkets here in in the Northeast. Maybe only in New York. I'm not sure, but it's certainly in New York City. And it was uh, the fire occurred in a in a Wallbounds supermarket in this in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn, which is in South Brooklyn. It's a community that is that that is right on the um, the, the Atlantic Ocean. It's a it's a kind of a beach community, um, but uh, Sheepshead Bay itself. Is a is a kind of a uh, an inland bay that feeds into the Atlantic, and it has docks for boats, and there are people who keep their pleasure boats there. People go fishing there, and etc. Um, and there's a big community; people live there all year round. And of course, Wallbaums, being a supermarket, was frequented by these individuals and uh, by the people who live there. And uh, and one day, this this fire breaks out. And it was a very, very difficult fire for the firefighters to put out. And um, they had to vent it from the roof of the, the fire, uh, the, the roof of the supermarket. And while they were doing that, um, as it turns out, the, um, the roof collapses into the interior of the, of the uh, supermarket and six firefighters are killed all at one time. It was, a, you know, until 9-11, it was one of the most, you know, horrific days in, in fire department history. And um, shortly thereafter, an investigation is done, and they, and they conclude that it was arson. And uh, now I was not involved in this case at all at the time. I, I was not in the, I think I might have been in the DA's office, but I didn't have the case. So I'm, I'm short on all the particulars as to how they made this arrest, but they make an arrest. And um, the arrest is of a, of a guy named Eric Jackson Knight, who is a kind of a guy that hangs out and lives in, in that area, that South Brooklyn area, Sheepshead Bay, which neighbors Coney Island. And, and, um, and he's, he's charged with the, with the six murders and the arson and is convicted, he's convicted after a trial. Now, the interesting part about this is that after the conviction, the families of the six firefighters bring a civil suit against the Wallbound supermarket, the fire department, Eric Jackson Knight for, for whatever it was worth. But it was a, um, it was a, a major lawsuit, civil lawsuit. 
And the families were represented by an attorney. I'm not going to mention his name, but it, it, an attorney who was a, a prominent civil attorney. And he also did some criminal work, but he was a prominent civil attorney, meaning he handled cases of a civil nature, not necessarily of a criminal nature. And while he was uh, investigating and putting together the case, the civil case on behalf of the firefighters' families, he found evidence that indicated that the fire may not necessarily have been an arson. It may have been caused by some electrical problems or some other problems other than Eric Jackson Knight setting the fire. And he, after <laughs> representing these, the families of these six firefighters become so entwined with this case that he decides to represent Eric Jackson Knight because he feels that he was unjustly convicted and rightfully so, if that was, you know, the situation. And um, what happens is ultimately enough, he uncovers enough evidence to have the case set aside, the, the murder conviction set aside against Eric Jackson Knight for the, um, you know, for the six homicides and the, and the arson. Now, it wasn't a, a slam dunk from some people's point of view, it was, um, you know, they believed that the lawyer was wrong and that this was an arson because they had the fire marshals do the investigation, et cetera. So it was a big controversial case and ultimately went to a, uh, an appellate court and the, the conviction, was, I'm sorry, the, the verdict that was set aside was upheld in terms of having been set aside. It, it remained no conviction. And after spending a time in jail, Jackson Knight was um, was released. Now, the reason it became he became a person of interest once the, the murder on the Coney Island boardwalk occurred, person of interest to my boss particularly, was that Joe Hines, my boss, was the fire commissioner during the time that this. Um, if it wasn't during that time, he was the fire commissioner. I think maybe when the case was ultimately set aside. So he becomes district attorney and, uh, you know, Jackson Knight was not a choir boy by any stretch of the imagination. He would get arrested in various small crimes and misdemeanors in and around Coney Island. And um, so he'd been in and out of, of um, the criminal courts until this particular case in which the, um, he's arrested for this murder on the boardwalk. And let me tell you about the facts of that case. The woman who, um, the victim in the case was a homeless woman, not because she had no family to take care of, she had no family to take care of her, and not because uh, she was some crazy nut who didn't have any uh, any place to go. She um, was kind of a rebel to her family, and she decided that one day she was going to leave home. I mean, we're talking about someone who was in her 30s. I mean, it's not a, not a kid... And, um, and she leaves home, um, and her family basically did not know where she was. I mean, she was upset with the family. She did have some, they told me later on, she did have some mental issues. But, you know, th she was being cared for by them. She lived uh, with, with her family, and, and things were great. And then one day she's gone. Um, and it turns out that she began to live with a, another homeless woman in this concession stand uh, on the Coney Island boardwalk. 
I don't remember. I don't even know if I ever knew what the concession stand, how it operated or what it operated, uh, how it operated in, you know, in the, in the summer season, but it was abandoned at that time. It was cold weather and uh, there was, there aren't that many people on the Coney Island boardwalk in, um, uh, in, in the winter or fall, winter and, and early spring. And for those, I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard of Coney Island, but it is a amusement park beach community right on the Atlantic Ocean in the southern part of Brooklyn. And during the summer, it's always packed with people. There are famous rides like the Wonder Wheel and the Cyclone, and now it has a baseball team. It's a, a Met Farm team. And um, his steeplechase amusement park within Coney Island was very famous. So Coney Island is a is a major tourist attraction in, in, in Brooklyn. Um, so this woman begins to live with, um, with her, her friend. Um, I'm going to use first names. Her, the friend's name was Christine, and that's why uh, she becomes important in the case. Um, so uh, Christine and, um, comes home from, <laughs> from a night out. God knows where she was. And um, the way that their concession stand was set up in terms of the two of them living there was the, the inside of it was a large room, so to speak. And what they did was they, they put a, um, a blanket they, to divide the room in half. They put it, they attached it to the, um, to the both walls of the, uh, the back wall and front wall of the concession stand. So Christine lived on one side and the deceased lived on another, on the other side. Um, so Christine comes home from whatever she was doing the night before. And we're talking about now, you know, kind of street people. I mean, they lived in this boardwalk, but they were always roaming around the streets of, of Coney Island. And as she enters the concession stand, and before she's able to get into her portion of it, to the right, from the left comes this guy, um, kind of moving very quickly out of the concession stand. And, um, and she had never seen him before. He was not dressed in any kind of, uh, you know, coat or anything like that. So it was really odd to her as to who this guy was, why he was in with the, her, with her friend and, um, and, and why was he dressed the way he was? So she goes now, he runs away, runs down. She saw, she saw him run down the boardwalk. And uh, she goes into now the other side of the concession stand to see her friend, make sure everything is okay. And her friend is laying there sleeping. It's morning now. Or she believes she's sleeping. She goes up to her, tries to rouse her from sleep. You okay? Are you okay? And of course, she doesn't wake up. Then she notices that around the deceased neck, are bruises, injuries, and she's totally naked. Now, I need to tell your audience that she was about seven or eight months pregnant as well. And cl more cl when, when, when Christine looks at her more closely, she notices this substance that is on the victim's legs, in her vaginal area, and um, she kind of uh, concludes to herself that she was raped. Now, of course, she's no expert, but that was her conclusion. 
She starts to scream. She runs out of the concession stand and she finds a cop, the first cop she can find and reports it. Now, when the police get there, they see basically what I described. This woman, pregnant woman, naked, um, bruising about her neck, all over her neck, on her side, on her, you know, she, she was beat in addition to what they believed was rape. She was raped because of the substance. Now there, obviously the street cop is not an expert, but of course they call the crime scene people in who have to take samples, etc. Jump ahead. Turns out that the samples that of this substance was, uh, was semen. And it was not only on her legs, it was not only in her vagina, but it was also in her anus as well, and, and on her buttocks. So it's a total mess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a total mess. And, and Christine is essentially the only quote-unquote witness at this point. She, um, she gives the police her story, whatever, her, you know, whatever she could tell them. And, um, and they ask her, you know, can you, you think you'd be able to identify this guy if you saw him again? And she believes, she says yes. And now Christine is not, you know, some, just some, uh, uh, a person who is, you know, can't, you can't depend on in terms of, of, of believing her story or even um, her, her, her way of introducing, I'm sorry, her ability to, to identify someone. She's, she's got a little bit of, you know, she's been, she's, she's educated. A, she's so not she's a crazy just, homeless person. No. And she's down, you know, she's just down on our, down on our luck. Sure. So the police are out and about and they do an investigation. And um, the first thing that they do, of course, is to um, interview people, street people up and down the boardwalk, people on the streets of Coney Island. And, um, and they, they come across, ultimately come across a woman who, who's, who is a prostitute. And, um, and her nickname is Pinky. Okay. She's, um, she has worked Coney Island as a prostitute for a, a good number of years. And, um, and she tells the detective something that's, that's pretty interesting. She had heard, of course, this is days after the murder. She had heard about the killing of the, the victim in the concession stand. And she said to the detectives, you know, I even knew her. I've seen her around and she was a nice woman. And, uh, you know, I liked her and it's really, you know, upset by what happened. And of course, she's worried about herself because if there's, you know, someone out there who's killing street people, she's on the street all the time. She's, she's concerned. So they ask her, well, you know, where were you that night? Um, and she tells him where she was. She was not near the concession stand, but she tells him, however, that earlier, because they placed the homicide probably well after midnight, but earlier that evening, she was walking on the big street in Coney Island off the boardwalk. It's called Surf Avenue. She was on Surf Avenue, which is part of her stroll where she would, you know, try to get customers to, to, um, to, uh, in, as part of her business. And she saw the victim hand in hand walking on Surf Avenue 
with a guy who she knew, and she knew his name to be Sabar, S-A-B-A-R. He says, well, I saw her with Sabar walking on the street sometime after midnight, and they looked happy. They looked, you know, they were holding hands, and um, and they were walking towards the concession stand in that direction. So now the cops had not only potentially a, a witness to at least part of this, but they had a name, Sabar. So they continue to, um, you know, to interview people around, and they find out that Sabar is a guy named Eric Jackson Knight, who is notorious to the prostitutes in Coney Island. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So they, they press Pinky and they, and they say to her, well, you know, do you know him? She says, yeah, yeah, I know. And um, seen him around. Would you be able to identify him again? Yes, to be able to identify him again, all of that. And um, she said to them also, when the next day came, she was out and about, she was going back home after her night of working. It was early in the morning, daylight at this point. And she also, she saw Sabar again, she said, running down the boardwalk away from the concession stand. And he kind of stops, stops, looks at her and says, you never saw me. Okay. You don't, you never saw me. And he takes off. So of course that is more corroboration for what they now believe, uh, who they now believe is the, is the person who did this. She tells the police another thing that's important. The night before when she saw Sabar walking down Surf Avenue with the victim, She said to the cops that he was dressed in a in this this jacket that was very odd in a sense. It was a sport jacket type of jacket, but on the cuffs, instead of being material, he had like kind of velvet on each of the cuffs. Underneath, he had on a sweater, a kind of very oddly designed and patterned sweater that was underneath the jacket. When she saw him in the morning, what she did see was him with no jacket, no sweater, and on his shirt, she said, looked like he had blood. So cops now had even more. So when, um, when they finally are able to, um, to pick up Sabar, which they were able to do based on Christine Maroney, her story, but more Pinky's kind of placing a name to this face. But the stories coincided, obviously, and they fit together. Maroney sees him running away from the concession stand. Pinky sees him passing her on the boardwalk, running from that direction with the blood on his shirt, talks about the night before with the clothes. And why that becomes important is because Maroney tells the police when they interview her after she discovers the body that she noticed this jacket, man's jacket, and this crazy looking sweater on the floor in the concession on in on Maroney on the victim side of the concession stand. 
So when they interview Pinky and she tells him about the sweater and the jacket, everything starts to fit together. Pinky goes off, goes on her way, and she, you know, they tell her one of these things like, you know, you're around, don't go anywhere, we need to talk to you again, that kind of thing. Same thing with Maroney. Um, so after, you know, a bit more investigation, they ultimately agree that it's time to pick up Sabar. They believe that they have enough to consult with my office, not with me directly, but with the with the homicide, uh, with the the person who's working at night on the homicide uh, riding desk. And what that is, is we had a an assistant DA assigned to what we call the riding desk. And that was the place where if any detective or cop had any question about a homicide that occurred in the borough or any need or the need for legal work, like a search warrant um, or to take a statement from a witness, they would call in and this particular individual would give them advice or would go out and take a statement from a witness, go out and take a confession from a defendant, would, um, would, would prepare a search warrant, that kind of thing. So he or she, I don't remember exactly who it was, gave the okay, you can make the arrest, find Sabar and make the arrest. So they do it, they do that. And they finally are able to, after many days, pick up Sabor. They, um, they bring Sabar in and they get find the Maroni, which was not that easy because remember, she's a street person. Mm-hmm. Just because she lives in that concession stand, concession stand didn't mean that she was always there and always ready. It's not like yeah, it's not her knocking address. on your door. Yeah. yeah. And, and she didn't have a phone. There's no, but they, they find her. They ultimately find her. And they bring her into the into the precinct, and they um, and a lineup is held. And without any hesitation, she picks out Eric Jackson Knight of Sabar as the guy she saw leaving the the apartment, uh, the apartment, the concession stand. Yeah. That night, uh, that morning. Now they dude what they did one other thing before that. They interviewed Pinky again, and they found out. Because she gave some more information as time went on, she really did feel bad, and she really was a, a good person, even though she was, she, even though she did what she did for a living. Um, and she said, you know, the next morning, a couple, I'm sorry, a couple of days after the murder, I went to Sabar's cousin's house because he was my connection, my drug connection. I needed drugs. I went there, and who was there? Sabar. And he made a point of telling Pinky, listen, what you saw the other, the other morning, you didn't see. What you saw right now, you didn't see. I didn't, wasn't here. You don't know where I am. You have no idea where I am. Okay? Now, that was, I, I skipped that. That was before they, they ultimately picked Sabar up. So they pick him up. They now have this identification. And... Um, and the assistant DA who has the case at that time puts the case into the grand jury and with Christine Maroney's testimony, and I'll tell you why only Christine, because Pinky then was in a the wind. They couldn't find her. We didn't want to run the risk of losing Sabar. They put the case into the grand jury and the grand jury believes Maroney. We put the 
medical examiner in and um, and was there another witness? I don't I don't think there was. But in any event, you get an indictment against Sabar for Eric Jackson Knight for um, for murder. Now, is it the best case in the world? No. In terms of beyond a reasonable doubt. But you don't need that at the point of the grand jury. Um, is it a case that is a slam dunk winner at a trial? The answer is no. So they give the case to me to try. And, and you know, I, I, I'm always up for a challenge. And I start going over the case. And I say, geez, man, this is, this is not a great case. This guy's going to walk again. I mean, I, I, how can this, I don't know if I can win this with just Maroney. So I, I have assigned to me two, to tick, two terrific detective investigators who work for the district attorney's office. They're called detective investigators because that's exactly what they do. They investigate for the district attorney to enhance cases, to make cases. They have police powers. Um, they're, they're, they do the same job as New York City detectives do, but they work for the DA's office. I had two terrific ones signed to me. Steve Bondor and Joe Macias were his partners. So Bondor and I became very quick um, friends once I got to back to the Homicide Bureau. And I, I was there at the time when this happened, obviously. And and I say to Steve, look, man, this is, this is a lousy case. I mean, I'm not going to pull any punches. This was a terrible case. I had gotten to know the deceased, the victim's family, I spoke to her sister who told me the whole background about how her sister was having some issues and ultimately one day she's no longer in the home. They thought that they knew where she lived, but they weren't sure. And of course, they, um, and they also knew that she had gotten pregnant. Of course, they didn't know who the father was, but they knew she was pregnant. And but they were really surprised, obviously, that she was living in this concession stand on the boardwalk. But um you know, when I had to talk to them about the whole situation, of course, her sister was very, very upset, but totally cooperative with me in terms of what I needed, if I needed anything from the family. So I go through the entire case, read all the police reports, and there's a police detective report in which an individual named Pinky is mentioned as being a, a potential witness and what she had to say. I said, wow, this, this pinky is really good, has potential. I stay, say to Steve, I really need to talk to her. I mean, we're getting closer and closer to trial. I, I'm not getting anywhere in terms of making this a better case, but maybe she's got something, who knows? <laughs> so I said, Steve, it's, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I sent Steve and Joe, said, listen, we got to find her. And they knew what her, what her profession was, so to speak, that she was a street prostitute. So Steve says to me, look, Mike, I, I think that if she's going to work, she's probably wherever she lives, she's probably at her home now getting ready to go, go to work. And um, I think we'll probably be able to find her. Uh, if not there, then certainly right around Coney Island or where she does her, her strolling. Um, and sure enough, they go to her apartment. We had our address. The cops had gotten the address when they interviewed her where she was living. She's living in some, you know, one room apartment over a, a store in Coney Island. 
And sure enough, Pinky is there, and she is getting getting ready. She's getting dressed that she was for her for her night, you know, on the streets. And um, and they talk to her. Steve and and Joe talk to her, and um, you know, she agrees. She says, "Yeah, I'll go down and talk to him." They tell her who I am. They tell her what I'm doing, and 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 they ask her if she'd come down to the DA's office. I said, "Great." She's on. They call me. She's on her way. So she comes in, sits down. Now she is, um, she's, a, she's rail thin. She has on, I, I have to tell you, uh, Tommy, she has on one of the shortest skirts I have ever seen in my life, like a skater shirt <laughs> uh, skirt. She was, um, she was all, you know, made up and everything mm-hmm. for her night on the street. Sure. And she was a very nice, she's really a nice woman. Um, and she tells me this entire story about what she saw. She reiterates the fact that she saw him the next morning, the night before she saw him, the next morning. And she tells me in more detail about her encounter with him at the, in, her, in his cousin's house the couple of days after. She goes into the, in detail into the discussion she had they talk about the fact that he was in the concession stand. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, she tells me about the threat that he threatens her, basically. You know, if you know it's good for you, you're not gonna, you don't know where I am. Same thing can happen to you. Say to her, well, do you know the guy? She says, yeah, I know him. He's, um, he's, he's, he patronizes all of the girls, the pot prostitutes. But she says, but I got to tell you, Mr. Vecchione, he's a complete scumbag. Why? What? What? What's, what he said he beats them. The girls obviously are afraid to make um, to make complaints. But he was uh, he he would not only have sex, but he would then beat them up. Sometimes stiff them, not pay them. He's a bad guy, and everybody's afraid of him. I said, what about you? She says, yeah, I'm afraid of him, but, you know, I, I sometimes I get along. I said, did he ever do that to you? She goes, yes. Did you ever have sex with him? Yes. Did he stiff you with payment? Yes. Um, and he beat me up a couple of times. It's just the way he is. So I said, all right. I said, are you willing to, uh, you know, to help us out with the, with the trial? I said, yes. You're willing to testify against them? She said, yes. But she was really the kind of person who um, you knew I had the, the, I don't want to say impression, but I knew that she was, there was some good there. She, mm-hmm. she was a good person and she was just unlucky. And she was not, Tom, she was not uh, dumb by any stretch of the imagination. She really, um, she spoke articulately. She was, she was someone who I knew that uh, if, if with a little bit of help, which I offered her at that point, she could be, she could be saved. So she said to me, listen, I, I thank, you know, and I told her, I told her all of this. I said, I'd be able to, we, we, we'd be willing to help you, you know, all of this stuff. And she said, uh, I'm willing to help you as well. And fast forward a little bit. So she becomes like one of my quote unquote best friends. I hear from her every day, almost from that time on, she called me to tell me that, you know, she needed some help. We set her up with some social service stuff. And, um, but that night, the night, first night I met her, 
we hit it off and uh, she smiles and she says, listen, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go to work. I said, okay, Steve and Joe will take you back home. She walks up, she gets up from in front of my desk. She walks to the door. She stops at the door and she moons me with bends over and moons me at the door and gives me this big smile and laughs and walks out of the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well it's i mean it sounds but it, it's kind of what you're saying though like it's a good person just kind of got a fucked up well, hand just pinky gotta, becomes pinky becomes a uh a good person yeah. and i needed to speak to her often because now i'm preparing for trial and i would bring her in because look you, you can't you, you got to work with these witnesses you can't just talk to them once and, and yeah. expect it to be stars on a witness stand um now, I missed one important thing. On the way out of the, on, while she's sitting in front of my desk and tells me that there's no doubt in her mind that Sabar did this, I said to her, really? And I'll tell you why I was so skeptical. About two or three weeks before we brought Pinky in, we had taken the, obviously the police had collected the semen off the legs and the vagina, et cetera, and um, had tested it for DNA. And I believe that one of the ways of making this a better case was to ask a judge for an order to allow me to take a DNA swab of Eric Jackson Knight. Now, his attorney who, by the way, was the guy who was representing the families in the fire department civil case, became his criminal attorney in this case. He put up a fight. The judge gave me the right to do it. We took his, we took his uh, a swab and, um, and sent it to the lab. They had already had the DNA swab, uh, DNA from, from the victim. Now they had his. They compared them. And the word comes back to me, they don't match. So, oh, I remember that. I, my, my heart dropped. I mean, I couldn't believe that I had screwed up the case even more than it had already been screwed up before because it was so weak. I said, oh, my God, I'm trying to strengthen the case. It turns out um, I basically weakened it. Because now the argument is that someone else did it, and maybe this Maroney was mistaken, or maybe she saw him you know, who he was trying to help her. Who knows? There's a million defenses that you can make with this mat, not matching DNA. Well, innocent until proven guilty. That's exactly that's what it is. So I now have this in my mind when I talk to Pinky, and she's adamant about it being him. She says, I know he did it. I know he did it. He's a, he's a bad guy. I saw him. I saw him with that blood. He didn't have that, uh, the way you, he didn't have the same shirt and jacket on like I saw the night before. I know it's him. I know it was him. So I said, really? Well, then how do you explain that we took his DNA and it didn't, his, a sample of his DNA, and it didn't match the DNA of the semen and uh, that we found on the victim? She goes, are you kidding me? He says, I, I, I tell you how that happened. And she was so certain. I said, what are you kidding me? She says, no, no, no. She says, I know how it happened. I said, how? She said, he buys condoms from me. 
said, what are you talking about? He said, she says that when she has a John and she had, has oral sex with the John who has a, she does it with a, with a condom on the John. She slides the condom off the John. And instead of throwing it out onto the street, she ties it quickly in a knot and puts it into her bag or in her pocket. And she saves it for exactly what Sabar did, which was to buy them. She bought, he bought them from her. I get so nauseous reading this right now. You're saying five bucks. I said, how much did he, how much does he buy him for? She says five bucks. And I said, well, what does he buy used condoms for? She said, well, because he's a bad guy. Yeah. He rapes the prostitutes. He doesn't want his semen to be on them or in them. So what he does is he wears a condom. And then what he does is he's after, after the act is done, he breaks open the one belonging to some unknown guy and spreads it all over the, all over the prostitute so that if she complains to the police and they take a sample, it's not going to be him. I said, Pinky, this is incredible. She says, you don't believe me? I sell it to someone else too. And I can tell you who it is. You can go talk to him. You'll see. I said, okay, who is it? She said, it's a Russian guy. And she gives us a first name. She says, I don't really know what his last name is, but he's a Russian guy, hangs around Coney Island. You'll be able to find him. He's notorious. And, um, and I sell him the used condoms as well. I said, well, what does he use them for? Does he do the same thing? She goes, no, he doesn't use them for that. He resells them to, at the time, there were live sex shows in 40, on 42nd Street and in Times Square in Manhattan. And he sells them to the performers in the sex shows. And that was legal? So that, that was, that live sex shows were legal? Were legal back then, yes. Right. He, set, he, he sells them to the, the performers. And to make it look real, the sex, to make the sex look real... At the time of climax, they are able to kind of break open the condom that was sold to them and kind of let it. It's, this is disgusting theory. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Let it kind of drip yeah, sure. down so that it, and the and the perverts who are watching this in the audience love it. That's what the Russian does, and he makes money because he obviously buys them for five bucks. He sells them for how many? How much more? And he and he profits and he makes a profit off. Question and yes. not at all really important to the story. Can the can the actors in the sex shows not climax? Or is it just, is it like a fail They wear condoms. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm retarded. They wear condoms. I'm retarded. Men wear condoms. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I said, all right, we'll check it out. She says, I'm telling you the truth. You'll check it out. So I, then she leaves. And then she gives me the, the big moon thing. And she's on her way. And Steve and Joe bring her home. So when they come back to the office, I say to them, did you talk to her again? She said, they said to me, yeah, she really likes you. She, she's going to cooperate. She likes, you know, she was comfortable here. And, uh, and I said, what did you think of that story? They said, you know, it may be on the surface. It's hard to believe, but she was adamant about it, that that's what she did. I said, okay, guys, well, what we got to do is we got to find the Russian now because I've got a horrible hole in my case of DNA that does not match the guy that we're putting on trial for murder. Yeah. So they spread the word. They go out to the precinct 
They talk to the detectives. It, and the precinct in Coney Island is the 660 precinct, the 60th precinct. And, um, and it's also the home of the um, of a homicide zone, the detectives who were assigned to just doing homicides. So they speak to, my guys speak to all the detectives. They spread the word. We're looking for this Russian. Kind of a, a she had a bit of a, of a description, but, you know, not, not this, like an eyewitness picture of the, uh, or a photograph of the guy, but she gave us a bit of a discussion. And, and I, I think she might've given us a first name. I'm just not, I'm not hundred percent certain, but anyway, it was not something that was going to happen uh, very quickly. But as it turns out, I was wrong because about a, a week or so later, maybe two weeks, I'm home. It's probably 11 p.m., maybe a little later. And I was just about to, you know, to get ready to go to sleep. And my, um, I guess at the time I had a beeper. I didn't even have a cell phone. Beeper goes off. And it's the office. I call in and uh, the guy, the the cop on on our desk says, uh, Bondor wants to speak to you. I said, okay. Steve, what's up? He said, you're not going to believe this, but I got a call from the detectives, the cop out in the 6-0 precinct. They asked around and they found out who this guy, who the Russian was, and they have him at the station house right now. I'll meet you there. So, okay, get in my car, drive to Coney Island from where I live in Queens. Takes me probably about, at that time of night, probably about a half an hour. Park my car, go up to the, up to the detectives on the second floor. Sure enough, there's a guy there who is sitting, and they say, it's him. That's the Russian. So how do you know? I said, well, you'll talk to him. You'll see. So I go in, sit down with him, and I, after introducing myself, telling him, you know, he's not in any kind of trouble, and tell him why I'm there, he goes, oh, yeah. I said, do you know Pinky? He goes, yeah, 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 I know Pinky. I said, uh, I said, are you a customer of hers? He goes, not for what you think. So what do you mean? She says, I, I'm not, uh, she, you know, I don't, I don't buy, I don't buy sex from her. So, well, what do you buy? He tells me, he says, I buy her used condoms. Tells me the whole story. Tells me that he goes over to Manhattan and he sells them at these sex shows in Manhattan and he makes a pretty good buck. Um, and he's been doing it for years. I said, did it, <laughs> I, it's, I was stammering. I couldn't believe that I had, first of all, I couldn't believe we found this guy. And second of all, I couldn't believe that we now had this answer to the biggest hole in the case. Se- and I, and second question about the sex shows. Yeah. And I know I'm really not hitting on what the story is. I have a tangential thing going on. And not peep shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are the, are, the male, are the male performers the same performers? Are they like regulars there? Yeah. So as far how, as I know. So how come they're not... All you'd have to do is delay it one time, and then they could save their own condoms and then use their previous condom. I'm just Mike's telling this story about this whole criminal investigation, and I'm poking holes in the in the profit model of these sex shows. (laughs) No, do you think here's what here's why? Because first of all, the women that were the 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 girls, I should say, sure, that were the female partners of these in these sex shows were young women who were recruited off, you know, they go to the to the Port Authority bus terminal and recruit these people coming from other parts of the country who were either left 
they're runaways or yeah. they left their parents they or they're coming to new york to make their fortune etc and there's they're sucked into doing this hey yeah. i can get you on broadway you know that kind of thing so they can't run the risk the the male part performers can't run the risk of uh, of one of these women complaining that they did this you know not consensually but that they were forced into it so there's no way they were going to use their own, you know, their own, their own semen at all. I mean, okay. it's just not, was not going to happen. All right. I, I so, yeah, I should stop focusing on the, the business model of the sex shows. We'll, okay, we'll, so we'll go back to the murder. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, they, and you know, these, all of these shows were, were mob run Yeah. as well. Yeah. They were all mob run. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, another reason why the women were not going to complain or if they did complain, why these guys were not going to put themselves in jeopardy if they yeah. if they somehow got the place closed yeah. because they did a stupid thing by using their own semen. Well, some mobster was going to come or some hitman come and, and you know, and, and, and kill them. Correct. So now I had I had a decent, in my opinion, a decent case. I had the answer to the the um, uh, to the, the condom situation, a story that seemed to be too crazy to have been made up. It was, it was, it, it was the kind of thing where you'd say, you know, no one could even think that. Uh, who could think a story like that up? It would have to be something that's true. It sounds and, like uh, a, it sounds like a kid making up a story for getting caught. You know, why did you, why yeah. did that, why well, this happened and then this happened and that, and it's right. just like, you're lying to me, but this is what happened. Yep. Well, let me tell you, let me fast forward a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the trial was over, and and I'll get to what we'll get, that's a whole nother story about the trial, which I'll get to now. I am, um, I'm working out in my, um, I have, I had this treadmill, Stairmaster, I forgot the machine. I'm working out and watching TV at the same time. And I, there was a TV show that was on ABC for a long time called NYPD Blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was about detectives in New York City and, and the cops, and, and it talked about, you know, cases, et cetera. It was a dramatic scripted series, not a, not a, uh, a documentary kind of thing. And the case that night was of a rape of a homeless woman, not on Coney Island, but Port Authority bus terminal or something. And, um, and it turns out that the authorities, you know, collected semen from her body and made an arrest. They had guy that they were, that they arrested in this show and they took his DNA and guess what? The two, the the DNA did not match. And they find a witness who says, well, I know why, because the DNA that this guy, the, the guy who raped this and killed this woman buys used condoms from all from other prostitutes and i almost fell off the machine it was my case that they were now somebody and i found out later on who it was a detective who became a technical advisor to the to the show told them my entire story and it became part of this scripted series (laughs) nypd blue because i didn't make a dime from it um anyway so now I had I had a case that I thought that you know I've got a, a decent shot at winning this. I had Maroney, I had Pinky, I had the story. We had the the um, uh, we had his jacket. We had the sweater, which obviously showed that it was the same kind of pattern that they described. Um, 
And I said, you know, I got a, a better than even shot at, uh, at, at winning this thing. And I, all I needed to do was to make sure that, um, you know, that the witnesses were prepared and ready to go. Now, Pinky became, as I told you before, a, a kind of a quote-unquote friend around the, uh, around the DA's office. She'd call me all the time, and we helped her out, and uh, we got her into social programs, and she got off, she got off the street. She even found a guy that she fell in love with. And uh, during the time that in preparation for this trial, they got engaged and she was getting married. She was going to get married to this guy. So I, I felt pretty good. In addition yeah. to that, the assistant DAs, the female assistant DAs who worked in the homicide bureau with me got to know Pinky. They felt sorry for her. They knew that she was, you know, down and out. But she was, a, as I told you before, Tommy, she was a really nice woman. Yeah. One particular assistant DA was felt that she was the same size as her. And she had old, you know, suits and stuff, pants and dresses that she was going to get rid of. And she gave them to Pinky. Pinky was like she had never had friends like this before. And she was she was, you know, always coming by the office. Even she had nothing to tell us about the case. She just would say hello. And they would sometimes take her out, buy her some coffee and, you know, that kind of thing. So she became kind of social. Uh, it became a social situation as well with, with her and some of the other assistant DAs. One morning before the trial starts, I have her in to uh, prep her, you know, to talk about the case, go over a testimony, prepare her for cross-examination, all the things that you do with any witness. And she's sitting out on the bench in, in, in front of our, uh, the detective who is the uh, man's off front desk. So people come off the elevator, yeah. they come past the detective, go into a, a sealed door, and into their offices, right? Pinky was sitting out there waiting for me. I hadn't gotten in yet. She told the guy in the desk, I'm waiting for Becky Hohn. And, and he, she said, he said, okay, just, you know, sit, wait, he'll be in. So I come in and I say, you know, to her, come on, come back to my office. She's white as a ghost and she's shaking. Almost. I said, what happened? I'm thinking the worst. I'm thinking that maybe somebody in Coney Island got to her or Sabar got to her to his friends. I didn't know what happened. She said, Mike, you're not going to believe it. So what are you talking about? She said, I'm sitting out at the desk and all of your people, people who work here are coming, are coming in to work. I said, yeah. She says, well, I recognize one of them. He is a customer of mine. I said, what? She said, yeah. One of the guys, one of your guys here. He's a customer. He comes to comes, picks me up all the time in Coney Island. I said, Oh my God. I said, Would you recognize him? She goes, Of course I recognize him again. She describes him. And as soon as she described him, I knew exactly who she was talking about. The Homicide Bureau shared a particular part of the office with a, a bureau of less experienced assistant DAs, who was the investigations bureau. And they were, they were the, that bureau was manned by assistant DAs who were new to the office, maybe a year in, two years, or maybe right out of law school. So I immediately go to the DA, sit down, tell him what he said. She said, Mike, you got to go talk to the guy. You got to tell him he's got to stop. This is, you can't, this can't go on. <laughs> so I bring this guy into my office. Tommy, he didn't even need me to say a word. He knew exactly 
what was going to happen because he saw, yeah, her he saw her sitting at the desk. Oh, fuck. He was shaking, shaking. And uh, I said to him, listen, I have a feeling you know why you're here. He goes, yeah, yeah, let me explain. Let me explain. I, 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 saw, I saw Pinky out at the desk. I said, well, explain. I said, but whatever the explanation is, it stops now. Yeah. Okay. No more. He says, well, I don't want you to think that, uh, that I patronize the prostitute. I said, well, then what is it? What is, she knows you, you know her. He, she says you're her customer. He goes, well, you know, I have to admit that I did. I was driving around Coney Island one time and, and she came up to my car and we got to talking I said, you got to talking? She says, yeah, you know, she's a nice woman. I got, she got to talking and telling me her story. And I felt sorry for her. So I put her in the car. I drove her to get some food. We've had a little chat. We talked and I got to know her. I, but I, I never had sex with her, Mike. Never. I never paid for sex. I would buy her dinner. I would, you know, I would, I would make sure that I would, if I passed by and she was out there, I would give her coffee. So one time, <laughs> I brought her flowers because I found out it was her birthday. I mean, this guy was was smitten. He says, and I would never do anything like that. He says, I'm getting married. I'm engaged. I wouldn't do anything like that. I said to him, listen, man, you got to stop. Stop right now. There's no way that you can continue doing this. He goes, I hear you. I hear you. And that was it. But that was just another part of this now crazy case with used condoms, stuff that doesn't match. Uh, I mean, it was like, what else is going to happen? And and there is more. That The Russian, how, how is he? Yeah. What more happened? Okay, so we continue getting her case ready for trial. We, um, I bring in Pinky, she's prepared. And now I send a cop to detect, my detectives out to find Christine. Where's Christine? I got to bring her in. We got to talk to her. The preparer. Nowhere to be found. They went out several times. She doesn't live in a concession stand anymore. No one knows where she is. We have no idea. Nobody knows, seems to, to, to have seen her around, I think, in the worst. I think that somebody got to her or killed her. I was so frustrated that I grabbed Steve. We after having, he told me this, that he had done a, a trip to Coney Island a day before. Couldn't find her. I said, listen, let's go now. You, I got to go with you. I got to go with you. We got to, we just got to hit every place that we can. Let's go. Tommy, it was freezing. It was so cold on the Coney Island boardwalk. I walked the boardwalk with Steve Bondor and I was freezing. We went to the one place that was open on the boardwalk was a pizza joint, a very famous pizza joint called Titones. It's the best pizza in Brooklyn and Titones was open. We went in there, showed the picture because we had Maroney's picture, Christine's picture. No, never. No one ever saw her. Uh, he they didn't say. We went everywhere. We tricked the street people. No one had seen her. No one knew where she was. They, it was a mystery. So I said, "Listen, man, I'm freezing. You're freezing. Let's go back to the office. We'll figure figure it out." So we get in the car. He says, "Let me just do one other thing." He goes and stops in front of the police precinct house. And he goes in. Oh, by the way, what we were doing as we were going around talking to people is Steve was leaving his business card with everybody we spoke to. And he said, if you see her, call me. Here's my number and he had his number on there. 
right? So he goes into the precinct and um, and he tells him what we did and what we're looking for. And, and the desk officer is, you know, apprised of what it is. And he says, I'll tell my, the guy that relieves me and tomorrow I'm back on. We'll, don't worry if, if we find her, because the cops are looking for her too. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know. I guess it must've been the next, the next day, probably early afternoon. Steve comes running into my office. He says, you're not going to believe it. So what? They got Maroney. I said, okay, where is she? They got her at the precinct. I said, okay, go get her, bring her back. He comes back with her. I said, what happened? How did, how did they get her? He said, Mike, you're not going to believe this story. The desk officer tells me that he's working. He looks up and there's this guy dragging in this woman into the precinct station house. Like he had her around, almost around her neck and he was like dragging her in. He said, the guy came to the front desk, had your card and said, this guy pointing to the card is looking for her. Here and you go. Of course, there you go. He left her there. Just, just c- citizen vigilante. Just, he wants her. <laughs> I said, I, got, I couldn't believe it. I said, Steve, are you kidding me? He goes, no, that's exactly what happened. Was, he said, I get there. The cop tells me the story. Fucking Batman. So where is she? She's out of the desk. She comes in and I find out. I said, where, where have you been? We've been looking for you. Well, she says, uh, you know, I'm a street guy, street girl. I, I, I live on the streets. I can't, I got to hide. I can't. I can't be around this guy. I know Sabar. I know what he's not capable of. And I, he's got friends. He's got cousins. I've been hiding is what she was saying. I said, okay, three or four days I prepare her. And, and this was close now to the trial. She's all okay now. She's, she's terrific. I said, listen, I know you're a street person. I know you don't have a home. Here's what we're going to do. With your consent, we're going to put you up in a hotel and I'm going to have detectives stay with you and guard you until we need you to testify. She goes, thank you. That's great. Okay. I had no problem with Pinky. She was around. She was not any, she, she had moved. She had the boyfriend. She was staying with him. So there was no, con- no concern about, about her. So we start the trial. We, um, we pick a jury and my plan was to call Maroney, Christine, as the first witness. I'm going to go chronologically and then ultimately end with probably the medical examiner to, um, you know, because it's the very damaging testimony. But and Pinky somewhere near the end of the case as well. But I had the medical examiner on call in the event something happened. And I'll tell you what that means. Sometimes you bet the best laid plans don't work. You have... This witness on call, this witness on call, this witness there, and sometimes things fall apart, Tom. So you got to have somebody else available because the judges get really angry at you if you're not ready to, to call a witness. They want to move. They want to move. They want to move the trial, right? So I had the medical examiner who wasn't that far away. I said, listen, I may need you because I knew that was a certainty. He would be there and uh, if I called him in. I said, okay. So... Um, I guess it must have been, we broke for the weekend, had the jury. Friday was, uh, it was Friday we finished picking. That weekend, I went out to dinner 
with, I was married at the time to my first wife and, and we went out to dinner with some friends in a restaurant in Queens or Nassau County in Long Island. And we're just about to sit down. The uh, hostess is going to sit us, sit us down and I get beeped again. So I call and it's a detective who's guarding Christine Maroney. I said, what's up? He goes, Mike, she goes, Mike, you're not going to, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I said, with this case, I believe anything. What's, what's the matter? He said, she's, she said, um, she doesn't want to cooperate. She's going crazy here. She says, call you, tell you, go fuck yourself. She's not going to testify. Not. I said, what happened? I had her in my office on Friday. She was fine. Turns out that Maroney was addicted to pain, uh, to uh, blood pressure medicine that she was taking. She wasn't taking one pill a day. She was abusing the pills. They were getting high and she ran out of the pills while she was in custody, our custody at the hotel. The detectives filled the prescription, but kept the bottle mm -hmm. and said, we're going to give you the pills one at one every day, like you're supposed to take. She went crazy. She was screaming. She went nuts. She wants the bottle. She, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it. She was, she was out of her mind. I said, are you in, in the, in the room with her now? Yes. Put her on. I said, Christine, it's Mike Vecchio. What is going on? She went crazy. Yeah. My, they won't give me my medicine. I said, yes, they are. They're giving you the way you're supposed to go. One pill at a time. You can't take three, four, five pills. I don't care if you're addicted to them now. We got to, we, you can't, we can't do that. She goes, um, I said, listen, how about we do this? How about you take the pill tonight? Call, I'll talk to you in the morning. We'll work something out and everything will, will be okay. She goes, okay, okay. Now I knew it was getting late. I figured she was going to go to sleep and I reached the detectives in the morning and it would be okay. So Sunday comes, I speak to them. Everything seems to be fine. She was, she was at least pretending to be okay. And, um, and I thought, all right, crisis averted. I mean, I, I never knew anybody could become addicted to blood pressure medication, but she was. I, th I think some can, I think some, and I could be completely talking about, out of my ass. I think some also have like a relaxing effect. Yeah. And it, it might be. be like, she's not important. Keep going. No, and I, I really didn't care yeah. what the medication was. I knew that I can't, we couldn't give it to her, you know, the way she wanted us to give it to her or give it to her, the, give her the whole bottle, let her take it herself. So everything seemed to be okay. Early, early Monday morning, she's supposed to be brought into the office to, and we're going to walk over to the courthouse. I get a call from the people guarding her. They said, Mike, she is worse than you could possibly imagine. She is screaming. She is, she is just, she said to tell you that you could go fuck yourself. She's not testifying. She's not doing anything. You don't, you didn't keep your word. You're a scumbag. And I didn't, you told me everything that I needed to say. I didn't know any, I don't know anything. I said, oh my God, what this, I said, listen to the detectives. Bring her in, bring it to the courthouse, and let me talk to her before um, we do anything else. 
she, they broke into the courthouse. I think she's going to be, you know, screaming, but I think I could calm it down. Tom, I've never seen anyone like this. She was, she was crazed. I mean, crazed, screaming at me in a, in the courthouse. Now, luckily, the courthouse wasn't fully open yet. It was before the trial was to start, and we the courtroom, the court, the floor that the courtroom was on was not terribly crowded, but there were people there, and of course, she made a spectacle of herself. She was screaming, screaming. I had a guy following the case, a reporter who had been who knew the knew Eric Jackson Knight from the Wallbounds case and followed all of that saga when he gets arrested again he now becomes a guy that's watching every single day of the trial every day and he was a big time reporter here in New York he is in the hallway sees this whole spectacle and of course is as any reporter would do what's going on I said listen I can't talk to you we we just were we're We'll be, we're going to be in a courtroom in a little while. I, I couldn't calm it down, Tom. I couldn't calm it down. She said, I don't care what you do. I'm not testifying. In fact, I'm going to tell the judge that you beat me, that you forced me in here. You forced me to testify. You put all the words in my mouth, etc." I said, oh, man. So I go to into the courtroom, which is now open, ask the judge to, to see him. The defense attorney is there. I go in to his chambers and I tell him this entire story. I said she's going to. Uh, he said he he was a kind of a gruff guy. He said, oh, "Fuck up, bring her in here. Let me speak to her." Fuck up. Said, "Listen, we can't do this. We can't do this in front of the jury." She says, "No, no, no. Bring her in here." So we bring her into the courtroom. Now, the reporter has a camera crew has been following this. And the camera crew has been filming everything that happened in the courtroom. She gets on the witness stand and the judge talks to her and she goes apeshit. She goes crazy. She starts telling him that I am a liar, that I and the detectives beat her, that we gave her, that we gave her the story. We told her what to say. She was, and she was screaming. And the judge said, listen, I'll swear you in and ask you what happened. And if you tell something different than what you've already told the grand jury, then you could be arrested for perjury. Do you understand that? He says, you can go fuck yourself too, judge. I don't care what you're going to do to me. You could, and this is a, a rant like you cannot believe. So I see the judge is now beside himself. He said, so he goes to me, shrugs his shoulders. And I said, listen, he says, I can't, we can't do this. Yeah. I can't call her. Yeah. That's it. And he said, all right, miss, you go back to where you were. You, you'll have me to deal with, you know, from, uh, and I knew that was just total bullshit. He yeah. wasn't going to yeah. do anything. So we, um, luckily I had the medical examiner on call. I call him in and he testifies to the autopsy and, and, and it was some other crime scene detectives and things like that. Finally, I'm, I, I am short a, the day is not over. And I say to the judge, listen, I I'm sorry, but I have no other witnesses for today. We need to adjourn early. So he agreed. He was at least a decent guy. <laughs> and he adjourns for the day, sends the jury home. I need, and Pinky is my next witness. So I had already prepped her to, you know, to, she was perfect. So instead of staying in the office, I go home. I, I had a, um, 
my son was probably about seven, my, my oldest son. I walk in the door, my ex-wife is looking at me and they had the TV on, the news. <laughs> so she rolls her eyes and um, I said, what, what happened? She says, well, we just saw the news. I said, Brian saw it too? Yeah. He turns to me and he says, daddy, why was that lady yelling at you like that? Did you do something to her? Why was she, why did she do that to you? So I had a, I don't know, I told him some, some story, but I mean, that was kind of like the coup. That was sort of like the cherry on top of the Sunday in terms of this case. Yeah. It was, um, it was just, you know, just horrible. So anyway, I know we're past the hour, but no, let me no, just no. keep going. Go Almost done. Put Pinky on the stand. And I, you know, I figured she had the cross-examiner. The defense attorney was a good, good lawyer. He knew how to, he knew how to cross-examine. He, he was, he, he knew what he was doing. Pinky was a star on the witness stand, a star. She told that story about what she told everything she knew about Sabar. She told her what she saw, what she, what he said to her. She even talked about the, uh, you know, the condoms and, and all of, all of that stuff. And she was, he couldn't shake her. He could not shake her. I had her identify the clothing that, that he was wearing and which was found in the, in the concession stand. I thought, man, I recovered. This is pretty good. This is not, not so bad. So we sum up the next day, right? And I'm thinking, and the defense attorney is like, this jury's coming in in like 10 minutes. You got nothing here. And other people who saw the case said to me, Mike, I don't know how you're going to win this case. He said, they're going to be back in no time. Well, the first day passes, no verdict. Second day passes, no verdict. Third day passes, no verdict. Fourth day passes, no verdict. The jury's deliberating now on this case that everyone told me was shit. And I felt it the same way. Four days, no verdict. That is unheard of. Of course, we had some readbacks and stuff. The fifth day now. But now we're getting close to another weekend. And that's a bad, that's a bad thing. And for, you know, because it's much easier for jurors to say not guilty than to say guilty mm-hmm. in their psyche. Anyway, to make a, a again, uh, to top off this case, of course, they come in and um, and it's a not guilty verdict, right? Not guilty. I was not surprised, but I was, you know, I was devastated. I put a lot of work into this case. And Pinky was, was terrific. So I go downstairs, leave the courtroom, go down to go back to my office. And the jury is waiting for me, Tom, in the lobby of the courthouse. And they walk up and they say, Mr. Vecchione, we just wanted to make sure that we told you what a great job you did. He said to me, if you only had, the foreman now of the jury said to me, if you only had one more witness, we were going to convict him. We knew he did it, but you had one witness really, if you had one more, I told him, I said, I did have another witness, but she, she refused to testify. And they said, well, you know, we're sorry, but the case, we knew he did it. Everybody in the jury knew he did it, but we felt that with just one witness, we couldn't do this. So, so on top of all of this, I would have had this guy, except for Maroney, you know, backing out and, and walking away from the, uh, 
do you, from do you do you but, wish you guys had given her the blood pressure medication? Would that have been the no, lesser of evils? I could we couldn't do that because what happens if she died? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I don't know what what that stuff was going to do to us. She could have overdosed in, yeah. in in you know in in the, in the hotel room. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Yeah, or she, the detectives. Yeah. The detectives weren't going to do that. Yeah, but let me just let me finish the, the sure. very last thing. I Pinky goes off and ultimately gets married. She keeps in touch. She has a baby. She lives in New Jersey in a helm. She's got this terrific life. And she calls, and I get a call from her one day after a while. And she wanted to just see how I was doing. This is a couple, this is either a year or maybe two years later. Um, and she had kept in touch with the the AD, the female ADAs so who she had. They, you know, got friendly with. And I said, how are you doing? Well, she tells me this. She tells me not only did I stay with my boyfriend, but now we're married. I'm totally clean. And I'm sorry. I knew she had a baby later on. She was at that time. She says, and Mike, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby, which she ultimately has because I found out later on. So to my mind, it wasn't a, a loss. In was, fact, uh, in my mind, this was a win. Because I feel that we actually saved a saved a woman, you know, and um, and I and I thought to myself, and I summed up on this I, something that my my grandmother had said to me. I, I had had one of the close people, somebody in our family. I think it was my grandfather. It may have been another relative that had died. And I was young, and um, not a baby, but I was you know not a toddler. I was you know in my teens, maybe or ten, eleven. And, um, and I was upset because of death. You know, that was one of the first times that somebody very close to me had died. And she said to me, my grandmother was from Naples with the broken accent, but she was sort of like this Italian philosopher. And she always had something to say, always came me, you know, the wisdom from the old country. Yeah. She says, you know, Mike, Michael, she called me, not Mike. Miguel, you know the, what, what, what is, what's happening when someone dies you don't have to be upset because God has taken them to make room for someone else that's coming to this earth, like a baby. And I thought to myself when all was said and done that this poor victim had to die, but we saved, we brought, we actually kind of, in my mind, we kind of brought a life back to, to existence in terms of pinky. She was, she became a productive member of society. She, she was a, you know, a, down and out junkie prostitute who was selling condoms for five dollars a piece and and putting herself in harm's way every day that she went out to you know to work so my mind it was a it was a win for the good guys and um you know yeah i don't know what happened to uh oh i do know shortly thereafter eric jackson knight gets arrested again for a car, th uh, for stealing a car, he finally goes to jail. He did go to jail, not for the kind of time that he would have gotten from, uh, you know, with a, with a murder conviction, but uh, he did go, he finally got at least something. And um, I don't know what is what happened to him. I don't know if he's still alive or he's dead. I have no idea. But uh, but that case, as you could tell, will never, I will never forget it. Never. I mean, it was... Um, it had so many twists and turns and so many things that sometimes I tell the story and people don't even believe yeah. it. They don't believe the story about the condom. They can't, they can't even wrap their head around that, but 
that was um, that was it. And I'll, I'll never forget sitting in that precinct, the detective room, talking to this Russian guy who I thought was a figment of her imagination. And there he is sitting in front of me, tells me the story. He says, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I do. So. I, I buy used condom from Pinky. Yeah, it's yeah, but you know, it's it is beautiful though because I mean, it sucks. Sabar pretty much got away and Maroney cracked, and that you know, it kind of feels like the woman's murder goes kind of unchallenged or un unpaid for. But I mean, that there that is a beautiful ending though. Like this woman goes from being a a junkie prostitute roaming. Coney Island in the winter. She would have been dead, Tom. She would. She would have been dead. Someone would have killed her. Someone would have killed her. She would have got fentanyl or some shit. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, now she's a clean mom, married, living in like suburban New Jersey. Like, yep. and you know, the victim's sister, who I had gotten to know, um, was at the courthouse the day that verdict came in, and she came up to me, and I thought that she was going to be upset. She's, of course, she was. She said, "Look, justice was not done here, but." She said, you, I, I can't thank you enough. She said, um, you, you know, you were able to kind of make us, give us some closure in terms of, of this. You, you know, you, it was a, in, in a strange way, honored my sister's death. She died so horribly, but, you know, you, you did what you could to, to make sure that, uh, that justice was done. And, um, and, you know, uh, we won't ever forget you know, what you did for us. So that was another thing that, that kind of makes you, <laughs> made me feel good about, about the case that it was, it, it, even though she was a homeless woman living in a concession stand, she had a family and, and it was important for the family to, to see that, um, that somebody cared for at least her memory enough to, you know, to take on this bad guy. And, um, and that was, you know, that that made me feel. I mean, that's why I did this work. Huh? You know, yeah. I did this. Certainly didn't do it for the money. You do it for for what to help to help people. And um, well, and it was uh, it was not a total loss, as I said before, with regard to that. So well, and yeah. it's there's kind of a like another odd twist on it. And I said this when we talked about Hand of the Killer, is that I mean, Sabar is I mean clearly a, a piece of shit, but the process. Right, there is it is a a win. I don't know how to uh, very loosely. It is a win for the the process of innocent until proven guilty. Like you can't just say here's the guy, here's the scene. Like you got to go and be like, that's not a DNA match. And then you have to go and dig and find it. And they said if you had one more witness, and you know, sure it sucks because you know the story. Yeah. But you know how many stories would there have been one more witness but the guy really didn't do anything and that the only reason they couldn't find another witness is because he didn't do it and they actually couldn't find a witness it is and it's a it's a dark take on it but in a weird way it is a, a sort of a win for the justice system that like you know it's like it's like when like a terrorist in guantanamo bay gets like a trial or something and you're like who's this motherfucker but at the same time there is something good about it that like it's not just vigilante justice it's not just the king says and it's off of someone's head it is good that that it's that some sort of system is in place and sometimes there is a miscarriage of justice but like 
You know, it's like cop pulls me over and wants to search my car and I say no. And then they later find out there really was nothing in my car. But I, as a citizen, had the right to say, fuck off. It's my car. Correct. There is something good about that. And this shit like this does happen. But that also means that the system is robust enough that it works for those who do need it, who really didn't do the crime. And it is good that the system can't just kind of be, come on, we all know he did it. Yeah. And it's like. No, it's good that the system is this sort of, I mean, almost like a science. And it's like you can't circumvent the rules. I think it's a good thing. And it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible, you know. But it, it's terrible that, the that you know, her death went unanswered for or unpaid for. But it but is. But the evidence, but as it turns out, the evidence wasn't as strong as this jury wanted it to be. Yeah. And uh, and that's the way, that's the system. That's what you know, I mean that, though. And that that's just exactly. that's good that the system's that that strong. And it's you know, if it means that there's one miscarriage of justice for nine hundred and ninety nine, you know, proper uses of justice, you know, that that's that's not a bad thing, right? It's like it's not yeah. a bad thing that yeah. But um I, my my uncle who was a lawyer who I really admired and who was my inspiration to become an attorney used to say to me that it's, and he learned this, he said in law school that um, it's better for nine guilty people to go free than to have one innocent man be uh, convicted. Well, yeah. And, you know, that's that's, what, yeah. That's what I mean is, yeah, it's because when, you know, what am I going to be in the, in the seat where I'm like, I didn't do this. And they go, you know, we would have convicted Tommy, but you just couldn't find another witness. And I'm going, because there isn't another witness. Thank God. You know, and again, it's easier said than done. It's, you know, you know, I lost a brother to suicide. It wasn't murder, but let's just say it was murder. Yeah. I would seven and a half years later, I'd still be staring that someone got away. And so I, I get, where their family's kind of disappointment and anger. I mean, I completely get it, but it's, I don't know, rather err on the side of caution. I mean, it's. No, the one thing that I felt bad about her sister, the deceased sister was that the family didn't even know that she was pregnant. Yeah. You know, yeah. she was, she had left the yeah. home and she left there, left the family. And um, so that was a, when, when I first met her, that was a real, a real shock to them, you know, that, uh, that she was pregnant and um but you know what are you gonna do it was uh it's yeah. it's an unfortunate situation and i i always said to them look if, if you did what the best you could she said they try to find her you know they would try to 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 quote unquote rescue her and bring her bring her back it just didn't work she just didn't want to be found you know yeah. she didn't want to be she wanted to live where she lived and um and and that was that was it and except for this you know, coming across this, you know, this, this bastard in one night, she would have, she would have given birth to that baby. And maybe who knows, maybe she would have gone back to her family, but, yeah. uh, you know, but, uh, you know, ifs and buts. Yeah. It's ultimately, I think it's, it's a win. I do think it's a win for the justice system in that you have to be airtight. You can't go in there with a hunch and a, you know, you give a dramatic exactly. speech and, fucking you know because what happens when it's an innocent person you know we look back and 500 years we go oh she wasn't a witch too too bad we burned her you know it's like that's fucked up so it's you know if it yeah yeah, so mike we got to wrap this one up i got to prepare for the next one um 
as okay. always, a pleasure. I will text you. We'll set up the next one with the guy that uh, dressed up as his mom or faked his mom. Impersonated. Yeah. Yeah. And I got. A, I've got another one too. I'll send yeah, you. Yeah. The, yeah. I'll send you the uh, the this the the synopsis of it. It's uh, it's another story with a twist with a mom who is uh, looking for justice for her son, and turns out the son isn't who she thought he was, and uh, it, it's a it's another one of these kind of twist and turn stories. It's a pretty good one. So yeah. I'll send it to you. We can uh, do it some other time. We'll do the, we'll do the guy, the guy who impersonated his mother next time. Hell yeah. Uh, I'll text you. We'll, we'll set that one up and everyone listening. If you like these stories, go get crooked Brooklyn or friends of the family or behind the murder curtain. They're all kind right. of, yeah, they're all kind of series of these, of these, well, not friends. That's different. They're for the most part, they are just sort of series of these, uh, of these stories of just kind of the most interesting stories that you experienced in your career. And, um, the ones we've gone over don't even, aren't even the half of it. So if you want those, go get them on Kindle. And I think it was, it's Crook and Brooklyn's on audible and you and Bruce need to put behind the murder curtain on audible. You guys are fucking up. You guys need to chop chop. I've been telling you that for a yeah. year now. Come on. If, I, if we could, we would, but, uh, no one seems to be interested in putting just it on. Get a narrator. This doesn't sounds like excuses, Mike. Excuses. The, um, well, it's not my excuse, I but uh, it's I'm the excuse that I get from the publisher. Uh, and know. let me just give a preview. Homicide is my business is the will be the next book that comes out, but not until spring. So we'll have to talk about that. Spring 2022. We've been hyping yeah. it up. We've been hyping it up and we'll continue to hype it up until exactly. it's out. Exactly. And um, so. Mike, I'll text you. We'll set this one up. Thank you. As Thank always, you, Tom. For coming on. As all. And thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. And it's like, like I said, you know, start the morning with Biggie Smalls and 10, 10 minutes. It's, you know, her bruised body was found covered in semen. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> today must be Vecchione. That's what we're yeah, doing. You know, I, I think I tell you something. <laughs> Biggie Smalls came from my old neighborhood. Hell like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Hell anyway, yeah. Anyway, that's. Shout, rest in peace, Biggie. Okay. Pour one out. And uh, <laughs> Mike Vecchione. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you so I'll much, sir. Thanks, man. Always. Bye-bye. God bless. Take care, everybody. Recording stopped. Stay safe.